0: Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, And I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Jonathan Taplin. Uh, Now, I had uh, Mr. Taplin on a few months back to talk about his previous book. Uh, We're here to talk about his new one today, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Uh, Mr. Taplin is a public intellectual, writer, film producer, and scholar. Uh, the director emeritus of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California, um, and he uh, he has one of the most interesting and varied careers of anybody I've had on the show. You know, he used to he was a tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band. Um, he produced Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets as well as The Last Waltz, which has an excellent new Criterion 4K. John, uh, have you seen the new uh, Criterion 4K of that movie? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I just saw it last week in a big theater, it,
0: was oh, great. it it looks amazing. I mean, those those guys do good work. Um but uh we're so we're we're here to talk about your new book. Now, your new book, I I, I mentioned this over email. It's a little bit beyond the purview of the show usually. Um it, but there was a there's a very interesting chapter in it, The Rise of Fantasy Culture, um which I I am I'm always uh interested in because there's there's a real there's a real question and I think this is the eternal question about art right how much does art shape our reality and how much does it reflect our reality and I I I am torn by it all the time because if if art is shaping our reality there is a much different ethical imperative to it I think than if it simply reflects our reality or am I Am I getting this confused? Do you think Do you think that's wrong or backwards?
1: Well, you know the, the very famous business uh, analyst named Peter Drucker once said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast every day," and I actually would argue that culture eats politics for breakfast every day too. And so, in that sense, I've always taken the position that art is leading. Uh, politics, leading other forms of society and in the sense that art makes things happen. So I would draw from my earliest experience as a young kid in high school joining the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and in 1963, Bob Dylan went down to Mississippi and sang at uh, voting rights rallies. Uh, A year later, three... In that same town in Mississippi, three civil rights workers got killed. But it wasn't until another two years later that the politicians, specifically Lyndon Johnson, actually said, OK, we have to have a voting rights law. So I've always felt that the artists were out ahead of the culture. And, and you know, Mark Cruzo has said that the role of the artist is, a, is to project what can be. So there's always a, a little bit of a utopian role that artists should play and in many eras they do. I'm um, certainly in the Renaissance and things like that. I'm not sure sure that's happening right now, but but in many eras the artists are the leaders.
0: It's it's interesting. Again, it's you know one of one of the um, running threads of your book is uh, the ways in which the uh, the the four billionaires at the heart of it. Uh, we've got Elon Musk, Mark Andreessen, um, uh, Zuckerberg, and uh, uh, who's who am I who am I forgetting? Peter who's the fourth? Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Thank you, Peter Thiel. How can I forget Peter Thiel, uh, <laughs> energy vampire? Um, I. Uh, it, and and one of one of the things that you talk about in this chapter about fantasy culture is the ways in which uh, their worldviews were shaped by utopian science fiction. That it was uh, that it that they 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 saw these worlds um, created by you know uh, Heinlein, H.G. Wells, E.N.M. Banks with his Culture series, uh, and and thought that's what that's what I want. Exactly.
1: Um. Uh- I, you know, look, they all had very tortured childhoods. Elon Musk was beat up and thrown down the stairs, and concrete stairs in his school. Uh, Mark Andreessen had a horrible childhood, hated his father. Uh, Certainly, uh, Peter Thiel was taunted for being uh, despised Playing gay symptoms, even though he didn't come out of the closet for another 20 years. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Zuckerberg had a kind of weird autistic uh, affect to him in, in, in his early days. Uh, so they all buried themselves in this science fiction. And most of the science fiction that they liked uh, uh, depicted a world in which nobody had to work. The government paid for every th- your basic living, and you made your reputation in society by either how well you played video games or um, other ways of, of kind of making your bones in society. But this notion of a kind of universal basic income and that the AIs did everything is something that I think, these people really embrace. I mean, there really are two views of what the future is going to look like, one of which is we take the combined brains of scientists and others and work on real-world problems like a a sustainable energy future or uh, housing for homeless people. Or the other view is Well, the AIs and the robots are going to basically doing most of the jobs, and we better get ready to have universal basic income because most people are going to be out of work, and thus Zuckerberg can actually posit a future in which people will be on the metaverse for seven or eight hours a day because they won't have anything else to do. So they'll want a fantasy life. They'll want to be able to not just, watch Tony Stark in the movies but be Tony Stark and and live in Tony Stark's house which Meta will rent to you and and date Gwyneth Paltrow which uh, Meta will rent you her avatar and and that's that's a pretty sad future as far as I'm concerned that's not a future of of you know that the epicureans who who I consider myself one would would believe okay. in well,
0: it's it's interesting because it is. Um, again, this is there is. I, I think there's an argument to be made that this is a utopian future, right? That people are freed from the drudgery of having to go to McDonald's and work their eight-hour shift, right? Or uh, you know, go to the 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 car factory and you know churn out a bunch of Teslas. Uh, instead, they can they can relax. They can some will better themselves. Some will. Um, you know, slip into uh, a sort of metaverse-addled, drugged state. Um, as you as you mentioned at the start of this chapter, you know the split here is between Brave New World and 1984, um, and this is very much a Brave New World future uh, that we face. But I, I tend to agree. Look, I've I've always been skeptical of the UBI argument, the Universal Basic Income argument, because uh, I. I I do not have a lot of confidence that people will, in fact, spend their times reading, um, you know, the the ancients or even the moderns, uh, and and will instead kind of slip into this, I think, stupor that you 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 yourself are worried about.
1: Yeah, uh, I. First off, do you think any Republican-controlled legislator would vote for universal basic income? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm highly skeptical of that. So I, I don't see, even if if all the vaunted people who gathered yesterday in the Capitol, which Senator Hawley said was the greatest collection of monopolists since the Gilded Age in one room uh, with Schumer and, and the senators on AI policy, uh, I don't think that there's a possibility of, Of universal basic income, I just don't see it in the cards in a in a basically world that, where the you know the minority controls the legislator. So, given that, the second problem I have is that I think that work. You know, I referred to Epicurus earlier. He said there are three things that make a great life. One is. Uh, meaningful work that gives you a sense of autonomy. Uh, The second is a core group of close friends. And the third is some sense of higher purpose in your life. And if you had all three of those, you'd have a good life. And if you didn't have them, you'd have a shitty life. And I, I think taking away people's work has been shown to lead to what Angus Deaton at Princeton calls deaths of despair. People eventually end up just, you know, going on to crack or, or you know, some other opioid or something, and, and, and just kind of falling down a hole. And and if you look at the rise of this deaths of despair in the last ten years, it's astonishing. It's it's, it's off the charts, and there's no other society in in the world that's as bad as that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh let's all right. So let's let's dive into this chapter here. Um in in at the at the beginning uh and, and earlier, we we discussed a little bit of uh about Bob Dylan and kind of oppositional culture. Uh you know uh, the the idea of um artists looking at at how things are and and uh pushing back against you know, civil rights violations or, or that sort of thing. What would, what does oppositional culture look like today? I mean, what is, what is the, what is the thing that the artists uh, you think should be pushing back against that the, the, the government uh, or the, the corporations are really pushing for pushing, pushing people toward?
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm not so sure it's coming from the artists anymore. Um, I mean, although, to some extent, it is. But, but you know, when you see Coco Goff stand up and say, hey, those people who were protesting uh, environmental damage and stopped my tennis match for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, were right. You know, that's, that's fairly brave, you know. Uh, so I, you know, I mentioned that I thought LeBron James did more uh, in the 2020 election in terms of getting people to vote and getting people registered than, than certainly uh, Kanye West or, or anybody else Jay-Z did. And, and so maybe the, the cultural mantle has moved from the artist to the athlete. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility though, is that maybe something is changing in, in, in artistry, and just in the following sense. This summer, the biggest tours, music tours this summer, were all led by women. I mean, specifically Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. and They made 20, 30 times as much money as any male artist was out there. So why is that? Well, it could be that we're getting tired of the kind of macho, Jason Aldean, you come into my little town and I'll kick your ass. Or young thug, this is how many people I killed, and, and we're we're getting tired of that. And and so these women, I mean, Beyonce called her tour Renaissance. These women are posing this other vision of the future, which is hopeful, which is vulnerable, which is uh, filled with kind of wonder and everything. And. People are attracted to that rather than the kind of dark culture which I think we've been living with, not just in hip-hop and not just in, you know, I cite TV, you know, the, the kind of anti-hero TV that we've been living with for the last almost 20 years. I mean, you know, would you really want to hang out with the people in succession? No. You can look at it as a kind of car crash in the making, but they're not nice people. Neither is Tony Soprano. I mean you may think he's admirable or has some sense of honor, but but he kills people. And and neither is Don Draper or the Walter White in Breaking Bad. I mean all these people are antiheroes. And you know, I made the the notion that in the nineteen fifties film noir was the same kind of thing you know and why was that well we just gone through a horrible you know world war and we dropped the bomb and and so we we had a kind of depressed sensibility um, that you know was only maybe broken out from by the beat poets or the or the jazz bebop guys you
0: know, let me ask. Uh, since you since you bring up TV, uh, I want I want to I wanted to to bring this up because I I do here's my my take on the the rise of the anti hero in TV is that it is very much a reaction to the uh, corporatized again kind of MCU theme park like nature of film. Film is now the place for adolescence and adolescent ideas and TV in an inversion of the natural or normal state of things. TV has become the place where adults go, right? And, and I I mean, I, I just look at something like um, I look at I look at Scorsese, right? I look at Mean Streets, Goodfellas, uh, I don't know, After Hours, um, the Taxi Driver, that sort of thing. And I see uh, I see Soprano, The Sopranos and Mad Men or The Shield as the kind of natural heir of that. Is that is that not is that not correct? I mean do you not do you not see that connection? No,
1: I, I think you're right. I mean David Chase has made that very point that, you know, he was trying to write normal TV and he couldn't stand it and he went off and, and started to write the Sopranos. You know. And and so I I think that's a there's a good point, and and so there's two sides to that, one of which is if film has devolved into this kind of fantasy culture machine that's very formulaic, um, then the adults really have nowhere to go, so they go to TV, but that does not necessarily mean that TV has to be only filled with antiquity. So there's there's two sides to that. One of which is if you think about the formulaic nature of fantasy feature, then you probably can understand why there's a huge battle and the writer's guild strike, right? Because what does Marvel want? Marvel wants to be able to put every screenplay it has into a large learning model and churn out new content without having to pay screenwriters. In other words, you know, the screenwriter will become a prompt writer. And this will be somebody who will put in, okay, in this movie, the Hulk meets Captain America in Iceland. And then in the second act, Black Widow comes in and it it gives it three paragraphs of instructions, And literally in a day, you have a first draft screenplay written by... GTP type thing. And then, of course, they got a problem, which is the Copyright Office won't copyright something written by a machine. So they'll hire some screenwriter, and there'll probably be a lot of screenwriters out to work, and that screenwriter for $10,000 a week will polish it for three weeks and put some humor into it and everything and be willing to put his name on it so they can get a copyright. And from their point of view, hey, it costs us thirty thousand instead of seven hundred and fifty thousand to get a draft screenplay, and it took it took three weeks instead of two years. <laughs> so, from a pure uh, just economic efficiency standard, the studios want that. I mean, Mark Andreessen said last week that. AI will save the world. And specifically, he thought it would save the world of entertainment because it would make it more efficient. And I thought that was insane. Because, (laughs) I mean, if you can go to the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, and you can see 10 drafts of Like a Rolling Stone, handwritten paper. It took him a long time to write that song. And he, as he would tell you, the process is everything. And this idea that <coughs> we can get AI just to turn out this shit is, is, I think, mean, crazy. Yeah,
0: there is uh, there is something crazy-making about the idea that efficiency is the be-all end all of art. I mean, and look, this is this is uh, this tension has long been at the heart of Hollywood, right? This is the whole studio system. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie. Uh, Babylon but there's there's a lot of that in there as well the you know this this kind of move from uh from silence to sounds you know trying to becoming less efficient um, but also more difficult and more right. um iterative uh which is again it's 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 fascinating uh and and I, I look I'm I uh, I, i've I've said this before on the show, but the writer strike in particular but the actor strike as well is one of the few times I've been pretty fully on the side of the labor unions and the the hollywood uh, the the Hollywood debates because it it this does signify a real uh, sea change moment, this idea of AI driven scripts of uh, AI driven performances created from recordings of, of actors. When you talk to people out in, in uh, the entertainment industry, what are, what are their fears and thoughts uh, and hopes right now?
1: Well, one of the things that the studios have proposed is that for $1,000, they could pay someone who used to be called an extra, now is called a background element, they could pay them to scan their body 360 and then they would own that body in perpetuity and that was at 1,000 time one payment $1,000 and then they would create a bank of extras which then they could virtually clothe in different periods they could virtually give different haircuts you know they could they could just have it and never have to pay for extras again. Now, you know, the the great myth of Hollywood, but, but it's actually true, is the only way to get into the Screen Actors Guild is to start as an extra and hope that a director gives you one line. Because if you get one line in a movie, then you can get your Screen Actors Guild card. And so the idea that they would just okay, I can, I can pull, I can put 10,000 people in the background of the scene, but they're all virtual. And they're all AI generated. I mean, to me, certainly the employment prospects in Hollywood go down radically. And, and then fairly soon they'll move it to the foreground. And, and why not revive Humphrey Bogart virtually? And, you know, why not take Robbie Robertson and put him on stage again? And, and, and you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, it all seems like that these guys really believe that they want to replace nature and humanity with machines. And they're perfectly okay with that, that, that notion of the singularity. And you and I always thought of that as a, science fiction concept, but these people think it's coming and it's coming soon. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, this is,
0: so this is, this is another, another key point of this chapter. Uh, you, you talk about, um, the, the idea of disenchantment of the world that in a, in a, in a, in a world in which we can explain so much of reality through science, people, uh, need something to believe in. And, and it, what's interesting, uh, particularly looking at a lot of these really, again, fantasy-based cultural products, things like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right, uh, science is the basis of the fantasy, right? Iron Man is a creature of science. Iron Man is a, is a scientist who, you know, uh, saves his own life and then becomes the you know peacekeeper of of the universe. Uh, Captain America again is uh, the, the the triumph of science over the weakness of the the human body. Um, Wakanda, the whole p- nation of Wakanda uh, in Black Panther, is based on a, a super scientific society. I mean, these are fantasies of science. This is a way. This is a way for science to become a new faith of sorts. Right. Uh, that's kind of the the sense I get from. Um, from again, from from reading this, but also just th- living in the world we live in. The, the singularity is a is a is a belief in the afterlife.
1: It's it's a religious notion. You know, when the guy who came up with the idea of the singularity was asked if he believed in God, he said, "Not yet." And and so, in some sense, you you know. Even Isaacson's biography, which I find to be pretty ridiculous of Musk, says that Musk thinks that he is—he has a mandate from heaven to do this stuff, what he's doing, you know. And so if that's not someone who thinks he's as close to a god, and, and you know, Stuart Brand says we better... Get good at being God because you know that's the future. You know, I, I mean, I don't I think disenchantment, you know, I mean, the enchantment once came from wonder at the transcendent, right? And and that's what religion was all about. Is people want to eliminate the wonder of the transcendent and and substitute this wonder of of uh, AI's ability to to write a poem like Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, and, and really, when you read the poem, it's kind of banal. Um, if, you, if you really think about it, one of the things that the people who are really deep into AI are worried about is what they call model collapse. So the more AI sucks in from the Internet... The stupider it gets. <laughs> because, needless to say it's absorbing huge amounts of false information. And nobody's telling it what's right and what's wrong. It's just assuming everything out there is stuff to learn from. You know? And so now people are saying, Well, we've got to have much smaller models. We have to just train it on some textbooks or something, things we know to be true. Because this idea that we just let it loose on the internet to learn everything is not working out very well. <laughs> yeah, that is a,
0: it, it really is the the central paradox of our times as we, we've created this vast repository of human knowledge, um, but we forget that most humans believe things that are wrong <laughs> <laughs> of, of uh, all the time. So what? Uh, we talk about the transcendent, and one one area that humanity has has uh, long uh, thought of as a transcendent, um, you know, event or uh, capability is space travel. Right? Space travel was the great hope of the 20th century. You saw you saw it not just in literature and film, but in policy actual policy sending sending people to the moon and it, it it's interesting in your in your book because on the one hand I, I think I, I get the sense that you're you are a believer in the idea at least the promise of space travel but very skeptical of how it is being pursued right now particularly by uh, musk who I think you describe as kind of a a um, uh, I, I don't know, uh, the, the, the universe's biggest contractor, basically, is what he is. What he wants to turn Mars into is a is a right. ten dollar uh, strip mall. Um, but the but, you know, I also also Jeff Bezos. I mean, I'm I, I'm curious what you think the role of space travel is in terms of giving humanity something to strive for. Is it is it a false hope? Is this a false idea, this this this? hope to go to Mars and terraform it and all that? Um, or is it something worth setting our sights on
1: and, and trying for? So I went out to JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is near where I live. And, and then <laughs> the first thing the guy, the leader of the Mars rover team said to me, well, he said, there's this old saying in NASA, no Buck Rogers, no Buck's. And the thesis of that was that if we didn't have some bold John Glenn figure in the capsule risking his life, that Congress would never get excited and never give the money. And so Musk has taken that no-Buck-Rogers, no-Bucks thesis to the extreme because, quite frankly, we've been sending rovers up to Mars for almost 20 years, right? And they do a very good job of digging up rocks and doing analysis on them and sending the data back to Earth and 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 they don't need any oxygen. They're not affected by the radiation, which would kill a human. In I mean, it would give you skin cancer in in like fifteen minutes. The radiation level is so high. Uh, so, the idea that we have to spend ten trillion. Of the taxpayers' money, on Elon's ego trip, it's insane. And and when asked by Isaacson, you know, why why we should go to Mars, um, he said, well, the, the well another motivation was that colonizing other planets would help ensure the survival of human consciousness in case something happened to our fragile planet. It may someday be destroyed by an asteroid. So we got to spend $10 trillion to go up there in the chance that some asteroid is going to hit Earth and destroy human consciousness, in Elon's view. Uh, as, you know, I don't know. It, it just seems like... As absurd an idea as Zuckerberg's notion that you'll spend eight hours a day with a virtual reality helmet. No,
0: oh, I mean, I I would I mean I would push back slightly against that in in the sense that I do think that the idea of worrying about a uh dinosaur style event, you know, extraterrestrial event is not unreasonable, but the but but one of the points you make in your book is that the the real thing that they are worried about and that frankly we should be worried about is uh environmental degradation, the the uh destroying uh the planet and having to move to another one because we we've kind of ruined this one, which uh is is another real you know concern.
1: Yeah. Because, what what are they doing in terms of the? Let's just say that the total sum of these four projects, going to Mars, building the metaverse, having transhumanism so that Peter Thiel can live to one hundred and sixty years old, and building killer robots like Mark Andreessen is doing. Um, so that, let's say that's 20 trillion dollars of investment capital a lot of which would come from gov, from taxpayers because entries and teal and musk are all on the government dole as much as they call themselves libertarians they're really crony capitalists so if you think about the balance of that versus actually taking that 20 trillion And fixing the planet. I mean, we could have an energy system that was completely clean. You know, we could have no homelessness. We could have, we could probably solve cancer and the mental health crisis. I mean, there's so much we could actually do to improve our planet. And they don't seem to be interested in that. They seem much more interested in this escapist future. And that, to me, is a, a problem. Uh,
0: let's let's shift gears slightly here uh, to to a broader uh, a, a broader question, like a, a more theoretical question. In in your view, uh, can can video games be art? Can can uh, I mean there there are artistic elements in games, designing characters and worlds and all that, but can the games themselves? Uh, be considered art, do you think?
1: Um, I think there have been some games that that were art. I'm just concerned that the biggest selling games are always first-person shooters. And I don't think there's much question, although everyone says this is like classic, cultural panic, but I don't think there's much question that the amount of first-person shooter game play has kind of coarsened the culture of young men specifically uh, over the last 25 years. Um, And, you know, I cite a fair amount of American Psychological Association data to, to back that up. So, I mean, it's I mean, it's just a problem. I mean, it's part of the whole coarsening of the culture. We go I go back to the Drucker thing. Culture eats politics for breakfast, you know. And we can have all the ideas of how to fix our country, but if if we're living in a culture that is violent and you know nihilistic, we we end up with what we don't want, you know? And and the other problem is that and and certainly your colleague Charlie Sykes talks about this all the time, these people have also put our democracy in danger. Someone once said that democracy's assassins always need accomplices. And these guys are the accomplices. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just, it's not just Musk saying, blaming the Jews for the financial problems of Twitter when he let Kanye West and all the other anti-Semites back on the, platform fired all the content moderators and then the anti-defamation league has the temerity to point this fact out to advertisers and and musk just unleashes his 130 million followers on the ADL as if like they're the they're the problem i mean it's it's insane it
0: is. It really, I, Elon Musk is a, I find Elon Musk a, a, a terribly vexing figure because I do think he, I do think he has had a couple of key insights and a couple of key innovations. The, the first of which being, if you're going to make electric cars and make them work for the world, you, you don't, pitch it to people as here's how we're gonna save the world by doing good you pitch it to people as here's a cool car that's fun to drive like I, I think he has an understanding of the human psyche in a way that that makes sense and and worked for him as a business model but also like he is a, he has Twitter brain poisoning to the extent that I've never seen before um, it's it is it has rotted his brain to the extent that he spent 44 billion dollars to buy it. And destroy it. I, I. It's it's wild. It's it's wild to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, look. Walter Isaacson wrote this book about Musk, and and he opens it with an epigram from a quote from Steve Jobs, who said, "The people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do." And so, Isaacson reminds me of that character in almost famous who is the young Rolling Stone 19 year old journalist who gets mm-hmm. on the private jet with the rock stars and the groupies are coming on to him and everything and he just he just feels like he fell into like this magical paradise with power and moving around and and I'm sure that two years of flying around in Elon's Gulfstream uh, has, has kind of warped his imagination because he makes Musk out to be some kind of modern-day, bipolar, pre-epic Thomas Edison. But he's not Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison made inventions that actually made most people's life better. The electric light, the phonograph. Elon Musk makes very expensive cars for rich people who want a virtue signal that they care about the environment. And they may be cool cars, but most of them cost $100,000. And he makes rockets for NASA that he gets a 30% profit margin on every launch. And he makes a satellite system that he sells other governments and still retains the ability to turn it off when he doesn't agree with what they're using it for. Like when the Ukrainians want to get close to Russia and push back, Elon geofences them so they can't do anything. They have no communications. He makes it impossible for their drones to fly into the Crimean. You know, I mean, so he's got too much power, and and he's he's got to be called... To account. I mean Howard Feynman, the journalist, wrote yesterday that he should be in jail because he violated the Logan Act which says that private citizens cannot engage in foreign policy. But Isaacson acts as if this is just some neo, Ayn Rand, Howard Work type hero who, you know, who's a little crazy but and very horny, but that's okay, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah, that is a, a little little um, uh All right one uh, one last uh, one last uh, area it, that that you discuss at length in uh, in the in your in this chapter on fantasy culture is the rise of online gambling, and and this is one area where I feel totally. Uh, Totally in sync with you that the the rise of online gambling is there. There are no good. There are no there are no good consequences here. There is nothing but bad. Um, What what does what does the I mean, look, I what what does this represent about where we are as a society that, you know, the the biggest growth industry right now is downloading an app to your phone so you can bet on whether or not uh, uh, I don't know. Aaron Rodgers makes it out of the first quarter. Right. Of the Jets game. Right.
1: Well, look, it is the fastest growth industry in the entertainment business by far. And, and it says that, uh, you know, we all know that you can never beat the house. It's the law of the gambling business. So everyone somehow believes that they're the one in a trillion person who's going to win the lottery. And and so this is the biggest fantasy of all, that somehow you're going to beat FanDuel and, and FanDuel's going to lose a lot of money. FanDuel's never lost any money. You know, it just doesn't happen. That's the way gambling works. So, I mean, it's it's like thinking that, uh, you know, the MGM Casino is going to go broke because you're so good at blackjack. It just doesn't happen. So, I mean, my worry is that this fantasy culture that they created has morphed into all sorts of other things, you know, and, and, and needless to say, uh, I, my biggest worry right now is yesterday I was at a forum um, which was kind of a, a side venture to this AI AI meeting that Schumer was having and and there's a company called Stability AI and they they have an app called Stable Diffusion which is a a large language model that allows you to make photographs or paintings or all sorts of, of very photorealistic images just with a prompt right and and they built that by taking 12 million images from Getty Images, all of whom were copyrighted, stripping out all the metadata from them so nobody could identify where they were, and using that to train their model. So I can go on you know, Stable Diffusion and say, make me a picture of Joni Mitchell, and it will make you a really good picture of Joni Mitchell, except that no photographer will get any money from that picture. So yesterday, they announced that they've got a brand new tool called Stable Audio, which will, quote, generate high-quality music for commercial use. Well, what did they do? They did the same thing. They just ingested every piece, song, that they could get their hands on to create this thing. And now they're going to create music so that if you're making a video game, and you need some music in the back of a bar scene, you would just get this for, you know, a quarter of what you would have had to pay to get a musician to actually write something for that, or even get it out of a, a, a stock library. So, I mean, it's just as destructive to the music business as Napster was, and, um, and same for photography, and and as I think I told you once before, the same for writing. I mean, there's more than 200 books on Amazon that have Chat GPT as a co author, um, which probably means they were written completely by Chat GPT and some guy <laughs> put his name on it for yeah. writing the prompt.
0: Yeah uh it's uh, I don't know it's it, uh, wild times ahead possibly bad times I, I always like to, to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked if you think there's anything folks should know um about uh, about anything about the state of uh, the entertainment industry about uh, about your book do you want you would you like to to pitch people on the book I know we, we didn't I didn't talk about the book uh, in, in its entirety. it's it's in, it's very interesting folks should check it out I'll put a link. In the newsletter, uh, if you if you want to pick up a copy, um, but the uh, but it's it is a it's a fascinating and uh, I, slightly dark glimpse at where we're where we're all headed.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I end the book with a quote from Camus because I don't think we have to live in the Elon Musk world. And this is a book he wrote called The Rebel, which was about how artists are part of the resistance, and he said. We are at the extremities now. At the end of this tunnel of darkness, however, there is invariably a light which we already divine and for which we have only to fight to ensure it's coming. All of us among the ruins are preparing a renaissance beyond the limits of nihilism. I truly believe that there is a renaissance in the offing, and whether it's female musicians or I'm going to Nashville this weekend for Americana Fest or whether it's young filmmakers making documentaries or it's someone thinking of a better video game that's healthier for kids to play. I just think there's, there's a, a better future ahead of us that is not a machine-oriented future. And, and that's what I want.
0: All right. Uh, Jonathan Taplin, again, the name of the book is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Um, Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Sonny. I really Uh, appreciate it, too.
0: It was a a good chat. Good depressing chat. I love it. (laughs) That's uh, that's what I love. Um, uh, My name is Sonny Bunch. I am the culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then.